Welcome back to our podcast, The Mac and Wooly Show, a podcast where we discuss and explore the intersection of spirituality and business leadership. I'm Nydia McGregor, one of your hosts. And I'm Jennifer Wooly, another one of your hosts. And last time we talked about organizational humanity. This time we're joined by our colleague, Horia Jazeri, um, to talk about compassion. And Horia is an assistant professor at Santa Clara with us who specializes in reputation and emotion and has important, more importantly, done a lot of work on compassionate leadership. And this is fascinating, really cutting edge stuff that is really important for everyday uh, leadership. Um, she has a PhD in social psychology from UC Berkeley and a master's in counseling psychology from Santa Clara University. Go and- Broncos. Um, and a bachelor's in psychology from University of Washington. Okay, Huskies, I, I can't bark. I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> and she's also uh, certified as a co- compassion cultivation training instructor of the compassion program developed at Stanford and a certified search inside yourself instructor of the mindfulness-based emotional intelligence program developed at Google. So, Horia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great being here with you. Well, let me just uh, try to get us started. I have seen compassion, which is what we're talking about today, described as the concern for the suffering of others. But it, it that seems like a really oversimplified or incomplete definition. Um, so I'm wondering, since compassionate leadership is one of your research areas, perhaps you can just start us off and explain what you mean when you say or when you talk about compassion. Yeah, it's really important that we define what it is that we're talking about so that we're all on the same page. And while many definitions of compassion exist, the one that I use in my research comes from Tutum Jimpa. He's a Tibetan Buddhist scholar and the principal English translator for the Dalai Lama. He's worked with him for the last 35 years or so. Wow. Um, That's, I'd actually like to walk in his shoes, but totally. Um, (laughs) Go ahead. So uh, Tutum Jimpa started the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, or CARE, at Stanford in 2008. And I was a researcher in the psychology department there. And that's how I first got to know Jimpa and the Stanford Center and how I actually got exposed to this concept of compassion, which I really had not given much thought to prior to that. Oh, wow. So initially, compassion wasn't your focus. No, actually, I had been studying other things like anxiety and contempt and anger prior Mm. to uh, studying compassion. And it was really just an accident that I started studying compassion, thanks to Seacare and Jimpa and others. That's I I just find that amazing because I don't know that most people know that you can actually study anger and some of those other emotions. But um, uh, and the fact that compassion was kind of a, a second uh, uh, a second focus for you, but and that, I, and that your your interest in compassion really stems from I don't know I, I want to say the the heart of compassion with the Dalai Lama. I mean that that is intense. That is the heart of compassion right there. 
yeah, I feel very fortunate to have been exposed to the compassion program and compassion more generally through Jumpa, who um, works very closely with the Dalai Lama as his, his translator. So I, I do feel like Jumpa is one of the experts on the topic. And so even though there are lots of definitions of compassion that exist, I tend to go with Jumpa's definition of compassion. And it's really considered to be this multi-dimensional construct or what Jimpa refers to as this mental state that comprises of four key components. So first is uh, an awareness of suffering. Uh, so that could be one's own suffering or the suffering of others. And this first component is really considered to be the cognitive or attentional component uh, involved with compassion. The second component is considered to be uh, more of an affective component where people feel some sort of um, concern um, or feel emotionally moved by the suffering. So um, rather than just seeing the suffering that people feel moved by the suffering that they're witnessing. Um, the third component is this intentional component or this wish to see the relief of suffering. So wishing that that person, whether it's oneself or others, um, is free from suffering. And then the fourth component is this motivational component where it's this responsiveness, this readiness, this willingness to take action to relieve suffering. And so these four components are not considered to be separate, but are really interwoven, each informing and, and looping back to um, the other component. This is fascinating. There seems like a lot to unpack here. Um, what you've described is compassion that has a mental, emotional, action-based and motivational aspect or aspects. Um, this is more complex than simply saying or feel or that you feel sorry for someone else's suffering. I wonder because you've you've pointed out, Jennifer, that that it really is more complex than just this simple idea of just being concerned with somebody else's suffering. Can can we dig a little deeper? So, for example, I, I was surprised to hear first that compassion is an awareness of the experience of human suffering, and I'm I'm wondering what you mean by that. Is that just intellectually knowing that suffering e exists? Because most of the time, when I hear people use the word compassion, I think they're usually using it. Um, meaning for feelings for one singular other person rather than sort of a general broad scope of the suffering of humanity. Yeah. And oftentimes people think that compassion is positive rainbows and butterflies type <laughs> yeah. of a thing. And they're surprised to see that the definition of compassion actually includes suffering. And so again, that's suffering of my loved ones, my colleagues, strangers, difficult people in my life. Um, and, and so we first have to recognize that we're suffering or that other people are suffering. And so without that recognition, then we just continue on in our lives and we're kind of oblivious to the inevitable suffering that's going on around us. Fascinating. Um, so there are the four components. Does this mean that there are steps that you can follow um, like a linear progression that make people compassionate? Is there a, a recipe for compassionate action, like uh, Midia's recipe for compassionate brownies? Ooh, I'll have to get that recipe for <laughs> compassionate brownies. I love sweets, but uh, I digress. Uh, to answer <laughs> your question, um, these four components are really interwoven. And so it's this combination of this 
cognitive aspect of noticing suffering, this affective uh, component of feeling moved by that suffering, this intentional component of wishing to see the relief of that suffering. And then finally, this motivation motivational component that um, we are ready and willing to take action to relieve that suffering. And this may give rise to cooperative, generous, pro-social, altruistic behaviors. Um, but this definition of compassion, this four-component definition, does not necessarily include a behavior. Mm-hmm. So um, given that, you can see that there are many ways that compassion can not unfold or it can not be experienced in that maybe we're just completely overwhelmed and we are not mm-hmm. in tune to noticing the suffering of other people. There are times uh, I know in my life where I've noticed the suffering, but I've not felt moved by the person's suffering, whether it's my own or others. And so there are lots of sort of um, paths where it can go awry and we do not actually experience compassion. So if you're missing the last step, it, or step, does that mean that compassion hasn't happened? Well, so the first two components of compassion, so recognizing suffering and feeling moved by suffering are really what is defined as empathy, right? Ah. And so we can feel empathic mm-hmm. towards others and not necessarily feel compassionate towards others. And so what separates empathy from compassion, um, we, we know through neuroscience and other tools, is really these additional steps of this intention, this cultivating, this wish to see the relief of the suffering, and then this motivation, this readiness to take action to do something about the okay. suffering. Is that something that's really broadly accepted, the, that, that behavioral component of compassion? It depends. I I think sometimes people will say compassionate action, for example. So they can say that you're taking action on your compassion. And so not only do you feel compassion, but that you're actually taking action on it. Um, Oftentimes, you know, when I'm teaching compassion and we introduce these four components, so cognitive, affective, intentional, and motivational, people will say things, well, um, to me, like, where, where's the behavior? Where's the action component? Isn't that sort of what's wrong with the world that not mm. enough people are taking action? And what we know from some of the research that I've done um, in my doctoral work at UC Berkeley um, is that we see that there's not exactly this one-to-one ratio of people feeling compassion and actually taking action. So uh, what we found through a 21-day daily experience sampling study with 100 adults across the U.S. is that it seems to be closer to a three-to-one ratio of people actually experiencing compassion. So those four components that I mentioned and then actually taking action. And so one way to think about it is that that experience of feeling compassion sort of primes the pump or readies the person to actually take action. And I think it's similar to other aspects of our lives where we can feel strongly about something, but we do not always take action uh, for various reasons. And, And you could imagine how at times the most compassionate thing we can do is actually not take action and to not do anything. So actually I, that, that has happened to me in the sense that I have had students who perhaps are struggling with their coursework. Um, and I, I see their struggle. I'm aware of their struggle. I see their struggle. Um, 
And what they're asking sometimes from me is to actually, you know, change my grade, improve my grade, do, do something along those lines for me to take action to as if release their suffering, right? And I choose not to because A, I'm interested in their learning um, and just waving a magic wand with the grade is not something that's going to necessarily help the learning part. But also because I know that with a little bit of struggle and supporting somebody through that struggle, they'll get to the other side and they'll actually achieve what they would like to achieve. And so that's when you were talking about being compassionate and not taking action. That's the example that that popped into my mind. Have I got that kind of right in terms of the construct that we're talking about? Yeah. So I think there are lots of examples in our lives where people want us to do something um, or give them something that they want. And we don't for various reasons. And maybe one interpretation of that is that we're not being compassionate. So the student that comes into your office and asks for a grade change, sometimes there's tears involved, right? (laughs) And when you do not change the grade, you can, it can be interpreted as if you are not being compassionate. When in fact, as you mentioned, that may be the most compassionate thing that you can do, not only for that student, but also the other 30 or 40 students in your class. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking about is what about the other people who also struggled? You also helped them learn and nurture them and and get through this difficult time or difficult piece or, or whatnot, and you want it to be equitable and you reward them for that but you don't want them to be or to see somebody else getting a, a grade change because of an emotional response. Yeah. It's kind of like or simply uh, asking for it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I should yeah. Say that. It's kind of like the trolley problem, right? Do you relieve the suffering of one person, but then create suffering for a lot of other people? Right. Um, and I would argue that it's relieving sort of momentary suffering, but in the long term, mm. it's actually creating more suffering. Because they're not learning how to regulate emotions um, or to change study habits or whatever it might be. That's interesting. You you also added now a temporal dimension, which you know hadn't come up at all before. Is like you know immediate suffering or discomfort versus sort of long term suffering or discomfort. And from a faculty member's perspective, you have the you have that perspective, that long term perspective. The student at that moment might um, might not have. I was going to ask you, you said earlier a little bit about what empathy is. And I actually, I, I've seen in other areas, people try to assign empathy, sympathy, compassion, pity, all in kind of a, a continuum as if, you know, you start at one end and you go together and one's more developed or more complicated than the other. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how those different concepts work together, empathy, sympathy, compassion, maybe even pity. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, empathy really shares those first two components of compassion. So the cognitive component and the affective component, and not so much the intention to relieve the suffering or the motivation or the readiness to act in order to relieve suffering of other people. Um, And so it's not that empathy is bad or uh, worse than compassion. It's just that it's a different concept, uh, construct altogether. Um, And we know this through, you know, Tanya Singer's work, um, which looks at sort of the neuroscience behind empathy and and compassion. Um, You also mentioned sympathy and sympathy is really this affective response um, that consists of feeling sort of sorrow or concern for the distressed person. So it's really that affective component. 
Um, and then, you know, pity is also oftentimes uh, a term that gets uh, confused with compassion. And in fact, in Tutum Jimpa's book, um, A Fearless Heart, he describes pity as being a near enemy of compassion, that um, pity is when we are feeling sorry for other people and we're sort of seeing others as being inferior or weaker mm. to ourselves. And by definition, this is rooted in the sense of superiority over others. Um, and it creates this separateness between sort of who I am and who they are. Um, and it, it has this flavor of, oh, I feel so sorry for you. You're so different from me. You experience all these hardships. Um, they're there. Um, and compassion, on the other hand, really does not see the object of suffering to be weak or inferior in any way. In fact, in compassion, we all oftentimes talk about common humanity or this belief that we're actually quite similar to people. So that difficult person or the person who just cut me off, that there's actually much more that I have in common with that person than that than I might consider. And so at some basic human level, we can consider that, you know, we're all people who wish to be happy and free from suffering. So even if we go about it in different ways, that there's a lot that really connects us with each other than, than separates us. That's the word that was coming to my mind as I was hearing you talk about the, the common humanity aspect of this is that it's acknowledging, becoming aware, acknowledging, feeling the suffering of others, um, uh, joins us rather than yeah. separates us, right? And in joining, then gives us access to um, to make a connection with others that we might not um, ordinarily. Thank you all for listening. We hope to see you in the next episode of the, the Mac, Mac and Willie Show. Show.